Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Writer, producer, and director Mark Krenzine has enjoyed a diverse film and television career for more than 40 years. He's worked on documentaries for ABC, HBO, Showtime, and Discovery. He enjoys the challenges of working in far-flung locations, from war-torn Iraq and earthquake-ravaged Haiti to a giant NASA cleanroom. His film, Journey to the South Pacific, now showing at the St. Louis Science Center through May, takes viewers on an IMAX adventure to a tropical island in West Papua. St. Louis on the Air producer Lara Hamden spoke to Renzine last week about the film as well as his latest projects. Well, I've been producing these giant screen IMAX documentaries for ooh, um, about 20 years, and I'd have to say in thinking back, this is probably the most demanding, the most interesting, the most logistically complicated of all the films I've made. We filmed this in Raja Ampat, West Papua, Indonesia, which is one of the most remote and difficult to get to parts of Indonesia. And the reason we filmed there is because the coral reefs in Raja Ampat are among the most diverse in the world. In fact, marine biologists pretty much consider them the most remote. So we set out to discover this and found a young local boy that could help us tell the story as he traveled around the islands and learned about them. As you said, it was a demanding. How do you get all this equipment to those kinds of places? Well, IMAX documentary filmmaking is particularly demanding in that we typically use large 70-millimeter film cameras that are quite heavy. So to get to a place like Raja Ampat, we first you have to get to the capital of Indonesia, Jakarta, and then figure out a way to get to these smaller islands. And in this case, we ended up having to charter our own airplane just so we could have control over the film so it didn't get x-rayed and the thousands of pounds of camera equipment. I think it ended up being something like 25,000 pounds of equipment we took to Indonesia. But of course, this doesn't happen magically. There's a lot of planning and scouting that goes ahead. And my job as the producer generally is to go ahead first and look around and find out where we can film and how logistically to get the gear there and then to work with director Greg McGilvery to put it all together. How long did it take for you to produce this film? Well, I went about five months before the filming to scout out about 10 or 12 local villages uh, in the uh, islands of the Bird's Heads Peninsula, as they refer to this part of Raja Ampat. And uh, then... The filming itself, we spent three weeks traveling with this floating classroom, the Calabia, which is the central part of the film, this uh, floating boat that goes around from village to village teaching kids about how to preserve their local coral reefs. And then we spent another couple of months on and off filming underwater. We had two underwater film crews, one on-the-water film crew, and then an aerial film crew filming from a helicopter. So altogether, the filming happened over about a three-month period. What's that process of scouting like and preparing for this kind of film? Well, the interesting thing about making these IMAX documentaries is often we're making them in remote, exotic areas that don't particularly have an established film industry. So my job often is to go to a place and figure out how we can make a film in a place that doesn't really know about filmmaking. For example, I might use a remote tour operator to be our transportation coordinator, something a person that has never worked on a film before. So in this case, we decided that we would work from the city of Sarong, the main city in West Papua. And I brought in a local filmmaker from Jakarta who spoke the local language, and she helped me hire boats to go and visit. And we spent about three weeks going from island to island trying to identify which village leaders had a story to tell and 
where the interesting coral reefs were. I'm sure, though, that you've come across so many stories. How do you narrow it down? Sometimes in a place like Raja Ampat that has such a diverse number of coral reefs and, and situations, partly it comes down to logistics. What are the islands we can get to realistically uh, from a boat in a matter of days rather than months? So it becomes a, a real kind of like a war room planning map when you look at these islands. Which ones can we get to? How long can a helicopter fly before it has to refuel? So we zeroed down on an area called the Dampier Straits because it had three or four villages that we could all get to within the same day and a half. Um, so for people who don't know, where in the world does this film take place? The film is titled Journey to the South Pacific, but actually it's right at the edge of where the South Pacific and the Indian Ocean come together. Indonesia is a long, sprawling nation of islands that's just above Australia and below the larger Asian continent. But Indonesia is a broad island nation that covers more time zones than the U.S., and this is at the most eastern part of Indonesia. So it's West Papua, which is a giant island system, and half of it is Papua New Guinea, and the other half of it is part of Indonesia. The specific area of the filming is called Raja Ampat. It's well known to scuba divers because it's kind of considered the, the holy grail of the most interesting and diverse coral reefs to dive in the world. And partly that's because Raja Ampat is where the Indian Ocean and the, and the Pacific, South Pacific come together and filter water through these islands that brings a lot of nutrients to make for some very interesting coral reef structures. Various unique features going on here. Yes, there is more diversity, underwater diversity there than anywhere else on the planet. Divers will come to spend a week on a boat traveling from island to island in Raja Ampat just because they know they're going to see everything from manta rays to possibly whale sharks to small, tiny creatures that aren't seen anywhere else. As a behind-the-scene look, what's your favorite part of putting this film together? Well, I guess to me, the favorite part was, first of all, visiting these villages, which are so beautiful one after the other that making a decision as to which villages to film in was, was pretty tough. But what was the most interesting thing to me was to just see the local population's natural connection to the water, these young children that live by the sea and Right after school, they might just jump in the water just because they almost seem like they're half tadpole, half human beings. And that, I think, comes through in the film very readily. These kids are so connected to the water. It gives you some hope that because they know the ocean so well that maybe they'll save it. Well, has your work told you anything about climate change? Well, certainly it has. These islands are subject to the same pressures that coastal dwellers face everywhere in terms of water level rise and warming temperatures. One of the things about this area of Raja Ampat, because the coral reefs are so diverse, marine biologists consider this perhaps even a seedbed for saving future coral reefs because it's so diverse. The Raja Ampat reefs seem to be maybe somewhat more resilient to the pressures that have affected the Great Barrier Reef, and they might provide some ways to save other reefs. It's noted that you're an environmental activist and an outdoor enthusiast. What about it is so important to you, and what message do you like to convey to others about the environment? Well, I think the most important message is whether you love the wilderness or not, we need the wilderness for our life, whether we're city dwellers or not. And in saving the wilderness, we're really saving ourselves. What led you to become an environmental activist? Well, I lived in a rural environment as a young kid, grew up with a lot of animals that my mother was always rescuing. So I had that connection. 
And I think it was my interest in being outdoors that made me want to preserve it for my children and other people's children. (laughs) What inspired you to start a career in film? I actually studied international relations thinking I was going to be a diplomat. But somewhere near the end of my training, I decided that I either wanted to be a filmmaker or an architect, and I, <laughs> and I narrowed it down to filmmaking. I realized, looking back, that because I make these films in such uh, far-flung places that I, in fact, am half diplomat and half filmmaker at the same time, because when you make films in places like Ethiopia and Indonesia and Sudan and Everest, um, you have to adapt to the local culture. So I've been able to be a little bit of a diplomat and a filmmaker. With the film that we were just talking about, Journey to the South Pacific, or other films you've worked on, are there ever issues with governments in terms of permitting or getting in the areas? Oh, absolutely. Whether it be in far-flung places or in national parks here in the U.S., um, you know, very often we have to deal with uh, local cultures that may or may not understand what we're trying to do. Uh, usually it's a matter of time and delays. It can often take months of planning. And I guess I've learned to not take the first no as the final no. And you have to drink a lot of tea with the, the local village heads. Do you like <laughs> but, tea? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> tea or goat or whatever, it, or whatever it might be in a given village. But in Indonesia, you know, they're a very friendly, open culture. And they understood what we were doing pretty much immediately and that we really wanted to tell their stories. So it was more a matter of just... Um, logistics of getting equipment to remote places and finding fuel for boats where forever, every day I was looking for diesel fuel for this boat or diesel fuel for that boat because oftentimes we would have a boat but we wouldn't have any fuel to get to the next island. You said you still kind of feel like a diplomat. Do people ask you questions about the U.S., especially during our political climate? Yes, people are uh, interested in what's going on. I think they One thing I find, they don't look at us monolithically. They recognize that Americans come with their own opinions and their own ideas and that our political leaders present one view of America. I would say in general, you could argue that the outer world knows more about us than we know about them. I mean, after all, being a powerful country, many of these countries I film in have a lot more awareness of our government and our issues than we have of theirs. So what kind of projects excite you most to work on? Well, certainly environmental projects are the nearest to my heart. I'm working on a project now that involves mountain ecology and conservation. So it's from the undersea now to above the sea. So all those things interest me. And mostly they interest me because I like to solve the problems of telling a story in a difficult location. I never was interested in spending my days on a soundstage. So IMAX giant screen documentaries suit me just fine. Give us an example of one of your favorite projects. Well, I guess one that I worked on with Greg McGilvery also uh, was humpback whales. Greg is a great ocean lover and conservationist, and uh, we got to swim with humpback whales in Tonga, and a baby whale was herded by its mother within about four feet of me. (laughs) So that was pretty amazing to have a, when I say a baby humpback, I mean it's as big as a car, and its mom seemed to be encouraging it to go over and check me out. So I was uh, surprised she let her son or daughter get that close to me. But that was a particularly terrific moment. And I'm also an avid backcountry skier, so I'm really looking forward to the project I'm working on now because we're hoping to film everywhere from Antarctica to Alaska on that. Backtracking, you said you like to work with giant screen films specifically. 
Doesn't that sound like a lot of extra work? It is. The camera equipment is quite ponderous, although uh, now we're getting to use more and more digital cameras as they get better. I think the idea is there's no uh, way to quite experience some of these places any better than being there except for a giant screen film. I mean, people aren't all going to get to dive the coral reefs of Raja Ampat, but Journey to the South Pacific absolutely is the next best thing to being there. And so I I, uh, really like the challenge of bringing that true experience. And when you can combine the giant screen story with the personal feelings of the local inhabitants or a story character in one movie, it can be quite powerful. Throughout your career, you've worked on a variety of subjects in a variety of locations from pop stars, including the making of the Michael, Michael Jackson's Thriller, documentary and various nature documentaries, whether they're in in national parks, like you said, or in places like Haiti after the earthquake or war-torn Iraq. What makes you so flexible? Well, I probably got that from my mother. She was always bringing new and interesting people into the house. Some of them were political figures. Some of them were refugees from Africa when I was young. Probably the idea that people come in different forms was started from her. And once you get that taste, Everybody, I find it much more interesting to be places where everybody isn't like me. <laughs> the diversity is what I think is, is America's strength, and so I figured it can be a filmmaker's strength as well. Do you see any similarities within the different projects that you partake on? Well, I do see a similarity in that whatever story that I'm trying to tell or the film is telling, it has to be connected to a human being's story, that, that it's always the people that are at the heart of it. It, no matter how spectacular the the scenery or how deep the Grand Canyon or high Everest, unless there's a, a human being relating their feelings about it to you, it doesn't mean as much. So it's about the people. What's one of the wildest or craziest situations you ended up in? Wow. There are so many. I think <laughs> there was one time we were in Ethiopia making a film about the first descent of the Blue Nile River, And we had no way to get our equipment from Ethiopia to Egypt. So we chartered an airplane, a giant Airbus, and the crew was 10 people, and the airplane seated over 200. So everybody had 20 seats to sit in. (laughs) And that was sort of interesting to uh, let the film crew stretch out. But there are just so many amazing incidents, it can be um, hard to pinpoint them. Another incident was we were filming in Sequoia National Park, and we had a tree scientist climbing the second largest tree in the world called the Washington Tree, a giant sequoia. And when he climbed it, he discovered that it was hollow inside all the way down to 150 feet. So we immediately got some rope equipment, and he descended into the tree and started examining wood that was almost 4,000 years old. So he was looking at growth from the time the pyramids were built. And it was just fascinating to hear his thoughts about that as he was inside the tree. What kind of lessons do you know come out of these for you, out of these different experiences? I'm sure they're life-changing. Absolutely. I think um, some of it comes from filmmaking isn't done alone. You know, as a writer-producer, I'm constantly working with teams of cameramen and, and directors. And I think what These are films that are made under difficult situations. And to see people throw together and to work the long hours to solve the problems, to go the extra mile, to fix a camera that's broken in the jungle, you form bonds over that stuff that lasts a long time. I I stay in touch with these people and look forward to working with them on every new project. Is there a film project on your bucket list or a place you want to go where you haven't been? 
Well, there are a lot of places. I have, I've uh, yet to be to India. I'd like to see that. There's really almost no place I wouldn't like to go, even back to some of the places I've been. I would very much like to do a project about all the things that we're doing right for the environment, a project that's been spoken of quite a bit I'm hoping to do called Cool Planet, about cities taking sustainable energy solutions into their own hands and what they're doing in the here and now to give people a little hope about what we're doing right. Are you optimistic about the future of our environment? I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I think there undoubtedly are solutions we haven't thought of yet, but there are also a lot of mistakes we are making every day. So I think the jury's still out. How has the industry changed throughout your career? Well, when I first began, for one thing, there were only a few legitimate film schools in the country, USC, UCLA, say NYU. Now, virtually every school has some form of film program. And you could argue, in a way, we're all filmmakers. If you have a smartphone and a laptop or an iPad, you're a filmmaker. And I have no objection with that. YouTube gets hundreds of thousands of submissions every day, and some of them are brilliant. So in a sense, the bar of entry is lower. Now, IMAX films are made with difficult, ponderous, expensive equipment, but that doesn't mean that it's ever easier to make them. So it's still about telling a story, and I would encourage young filmmakers to not wait until after they're out of school to begin their career, to keep experimenting right now and here with the tools they have. That was filmmaker Mark Krenzine speaking with producer Lara Hamden about his IMAX film, Journey to the South Pacific, now airing at the St. Louis Science Center through May. You can find more information at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.